You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. You've now tuned in to the Drawing Board Podcast, a powerful, thought-provoking discussion where we talk about family, relationships, ministry, community, and career. Let's see what exciting guests we have on our show today. Great evening to the Drawing Board Nation. Thank you all for taking the time to tune in to the Drawing Board Podcast, where we talk about relationships, ministry, community, career, and what under the guise of everything being family-oriented. Tonight, we have on one of the most sought-after educators on the topic of boys of color and the arts. Brian has been featured on ABC News, as well as dozens of periodicals for his work and commitment to changing the narrative around black and brown boys. In 2019, he was named one of Black Enterprise Magazine's 2019 Be Modern Men of Distinction. Brian has received numerous awards and recognition for his passion in education and empowering communities where boys of color have been overlooked and underserved. Brian, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. So to all of my guests, I know you all are used to seeing uh, in studio uh to all of my listeners, you used to seeing in-studio guests, but tonight, all the way from Washington, D.C., I have a gentleman yeah. by the name of Brian K. Harris, and I read some of his accomplishments. I read some of uh, the accolades he has received, and there is much more to his story. But tonight, we're going to talk about black and brown boys, the work that is done around that area, and how vital and important it is that we are not just adhering to the narrative that's being told by someone else, not just the historical perspective, but that we're crafting our own narrative centered around the potentiality and the possibility that exists within the young people we serve today. So, Brian, question, man, you know, uh, you're a D.C. native, right? No, actually, um, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania native um, and uh, kind of moved to the D.C. Uh, area when I was a teenager um, and then went on to college and then to graduate school and then found my way uh, back to the area. Okay, excellent. So Pittsburgh, yeah. Pennsylvania. So my, my father's family is from Philadelphia. Okay, I got to tell you. That. Awesome. So, okay. Yeah, so Philly, uh, Be More, D.C., Delaware. Uh, I stayed in um, Norristown, uh, PA. When I was uh, yeah, yeah. about 17, we lived in uh, Collingdale and Springfield, those suburbs of Philly, right outside of there. We lived out there. And, uh, man, I just uh, – we had this thing called Arts, Beats, and Eats in Michigan in uh, – actually, where is it? In Royal Oak, right? Yeah, in Royal Oak. And – uh, man, I met a, an artist from Philly, man. His art was yeah. amazing. So I'll share this one piece and we'll dive off into it. So he had a yeah, picture yeah. of, he had a picture of Abraham and in one hand he had the ram and in the other hand he had his son and the name of the portrait was Wait on God. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. powerful, right? Yeah. Yeah, powerful. Yeah, there are so many amazing artists in that Pennsylvania area. And um, I remember going to Philadelphia often as a kid and just being so amazed by the many artists that were on the street, literally painting beautiful portraits um, just on the street. 
And uh, so, yeah, that, that's one of the memories that I have of going to Philadelphia is just the amazing um, artists that, that, that are there. Yeah, man, the beauty and the grit of the city uh, that comes out through the artistry. So like Neo Soul, that whole sound emanates indeed, from, indeed. you know, the Philly area and that indeed. whole movement that happened like, you know, what, late 90s, early 2000s. And really right, just right. how how it's just the flavor and the movement, the momentum that exists like out east when you go. So now, like I told you, man, you're living currently in one of my favorite cities when I it is, uh, I know people talk about the air, but it's almost the air out there that, uh, man, it just breathes new life when I go, new opportunities Absolutely. and new ventures. So talk to me, man, as as a young man, particularly uh, with you doing work around uh, empowering our young men and our, our next generation mm-hmm. of leaders, or, or as you always say on your Instagram or Facebook post, our young kings. When you talk about mm-hmm. our young kings, man, why do you feel it necessary? Or what about your story causes you to gravitate toward empowering young men? Yeah, so, you know, Andre, we live in a day and time and in a society where um, black and brown boys are devalued and dehumanized, right? We see that in um, the media. We see that in the judicial system. And we even see that in various uh, areas of the education system. And so as a result of our young men being devalued and dehumanized, they really, in a real sense, are clinging to the margins of society. And many of them are searching for hope, searching for healing. And so I just really wanted to um, be a positive impact in their lives and really let them know that in spite of the way that society often sees them, in spite of the way that society often um, stigmatize and stereotype them, that they indeed do not have to live um, as slaves to those stereotypes and stigmas, but that they can surpass anything that society or maybe even their families thought that they could ever become. And so the idea of them being kings is just, you know, when you think of a king, you think of someone who is honorable, you think of someone who has wisdom, you think of someone who is in control and has the ability to, in some sort of way, control his space and control things around him. And so my reasoning for calling our boys kings is so that they can um, aspire to the place where they have the ability to control their destiny and their future. Because in a real sense, much of their destiny, much of their future has been controlled by society, right? Um, We see that again in all of those different um, areas. And so just really wanting to make uh, a difference in their lives and really kind of affirm who they are and affirm even who they are to become. Um, my own personal story um, connected to this is that I grew up with a very um, strong presence um, of a father. My father was amazing um, just in his approach to fatherhood. And as a result of having such an amazing father and really benefiting from having the amazing father, I recognize that not everyone and not every young man has that same story, right? So, so as Keith, a matter let, of let, fact, let me ask Keith, young men is, Keith, let yeah. me ask, man, because yeah. that's huge what you just said right there. Yeah. So I, yeah. want, I want to unpack that for a second. Uh, when mm-hmm. you talked about his approach to fatherhood. So like when you yeah. said that, man, I literally like got a visual of uh, a plane as it, it prepares to take off. And like yeah. fatherhood is is that approach to that runway. And many people on your plane 
And depending on how you navigate that, it also mm -hmm. determines the destination of those who are along for the journey. So talk to me for of that, if you, if you wouldn't mind sharing, like what was so unique or powerful about your father's approach to fatherhood? Yeah, so I think the very first thing that I can um, say very clearly is that my father had the approach of um, really instilling in me um, this sense of um, self confidence okay. um, and self-assurance, knowing that in spite of what's happening around you, in spite of what people are saying, that you in some sort of way are not what people say, um, and that you in some sort of way um, have the ability to do anything that you put your mind to. So that approach oftentimes is not an approach that is often taken because sometimes fathers, um, you know, uh, follow what the status quo is, right? And so I feel like one piece was just that idea of self-confidence okay. through continuous affirmation. Oh, that's um, good. And then the second thing that I, yeah, yeah the, the second thing that I think is so unique is um, I was an artist. I was not the young man who was the athlete. Um, and, you know, my father was. My father, um, you know, played football throughout his entire life from high school and even and even to college. And so, but his approach was whatever it is that you want to become, whatever it is that you're interested in, I'm interested in, right? And that's something that is very unique as it relates to fathers of color because there is a stigma that oftentimes is attached to young men who are in the arts and even more specifically to young men who have a special affinity, you know, for dancing and for movement. Yet my father, um, in a very profound way, you know, was so supportive in that way. And so when I talk about the approach to fatherhood, um, that's, that's, that's specifically what I'm saying. And so what happens is that that translates to then me really being invested in making sure that young men become all that they're supposed to be and me being very careful to not place what I think they should do or what I think or who I think they should become on them, but really acting as a facilitator of their own growth and development. And I feel like that's exactly what my father did for me. Um, and so that's why I talk a little bit about his approach to fatherhood, um, in my opinion, was something that was very unique. Awesome. I was just in a um, a meeting or a training uh, in a pro probably about the last, I think it was like two or three weeks ago. And mm -hmm. I was saying how when I'm looking at a lot of our mentoring programs that exist uh, that are developed to be like the counter narrative to what the you know public is saying about our young men. I also see, though, yeah. in there um, and I don't, I'm not talking about principally, but I'm also saying I'm also seeing in there that we are structuring programs that are defining like who a man should be. What is the definition of a man? There's so much yeah. out there about yeah. uh, toxic masculinity or what is masculinity? Yeah. What is the definition of all of these different things? And I say in a lot of ways in our attempt, well intended in our attempt to give them another story, we're not allowing them to unearth or facilitating their potential. We're again, Absolutely. putting them inside of a box that says that this is what, how society defines manhood, Absolutely. masculinity, and I think that uh, that that pigeonholes a lot of our young people from pursuing actually their God given potential. So when I heard you say that the, you are a facilitator and that is important mm -hmm. 
you know, principally, you know, there are some ground rules to responsible humanness, if that makes sense. Of course, um, of course. But when you start to articulate, um, like, what are our cultural responsibilities to being African American boys? You know, uh, being black and brown boys. Uh, what does it mean? Uh, for you to want to pursue arts, is there even a viable? Because uh, when we talk about um, when we talk about moving the needle forward for a nation of brown and black young men, we almost place yeah. this shoulder of re- this responsibility on uh, am, you know immature shoulders, right? So it's like, hey, mm-hmm. you need to develop now yeah. because the world is depending on you to be something different than what they saw. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, our approach to that really needs to start with an understanding that many of our young men are in the place of needing healing and needing to be affirmed in order for them to step into those roles as leaders in their home, in their school, and in their communities. And so I agree that oftentimes we place this heavy burden on our young men by telling them, you know, it's now your responsibility. We're passing the torch on to you. We're passing the torch on to them, and the torch is not on fire at all. As a matter of fact, the fire has been snuffed out. And so one of the ways in some story that we pass the torch in a way where our young men can really run forward is by starting um, to respond to the impact of trauma that many of our young men experience every single day. And so if we want to make sure, if we want to teach leadership and we want our young men to stand up and become role models in their school and in their communities, then we in some sort of way have to begin to unpack the places in their lives that are in need of healing. Uh, But in order for us to even unpack the places in their lives that need healing, we have to be vulnerable enough to unpack the places in our own lives that need healing. And oftentimes what ends up happening is that we are pushing our young men forward and we're, you know, calling on them to be more responsible and we are focusing on all of these extra things, in my opinion, that are important nonetheless, But we have to start with the basic thing of making sure that our young men are emotionally um, healed and emotionally whole in order for them to be successful in any other area of their lives. Um, And so I just think that it's so important for us to, when we we have conversations with our young men and we are um, in situations redefining what masculinity looks like, we have to be able to stand up, we as men, we as adults, have to be able to stand up and say, masculinity looks like me going to the places that are broken in my life and me doing the hard work that is necessary in order for me to heal those broken places. Because, you know, that's oftentimes one of the biggest for men not approaching, um, you know, the, 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 those broken places in their lives is that there's a stigma that's attached to that, right? And stereotypically, men are men that are supposed to be, you know, ultra-masculine, not really expressing or showing emotion. And we don't realize that, that not only is that hindering us, um, but it's also hindering our boys. And so a lot of the work that I do focuses on the idea of mindfulness, you know, the notion that when I'm more mindful of my own um, behaviors and my own emotional um, uh, competencies or, or abilities, I then have an opportunity to impart to our young men. Man, that's that's excellent, particularly uh, because me as a dean of culture and climate and you being yeah. the director of outplacement and graduate support at Bishop Walker School for Boys in Washington, D.C., 
uh, that mindfulness practice makes us self-aware and that self-awareness leads to self-regulation, right? So Absolutely. when you talk, I was in a, I was in a restorative practice training today, uh, Keith, and here's, here's what was amazing. One, one of my colleagues shared, it says self-regulation should get you to a point to understand that you don't need any outside force to control or dictate your behavior. But what it, but what it should not lead to lead to is you just controlling uh, your emotions when you should be able to feel them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and isn't that such a powerful thought, right? The, 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 first, the first piece of self-regulation, um, which your colleagues ca- kind of raised, is the idea that self-regulation in some sort of way gives you the ability to be in control of your space and to be more mindful of your space, right? And as a result of you being more mindful of your space, you then are more mindful of the spaces that other people occupy. But you also are in a place where when you need in some sort of way, um, w- w- when being emotional is something that is necessary, you know how to um, occupy that space without really worrying about how that is appearing um, or even worrying about um, if it's okay to do, right? And so one of the things that I teach uh, the young men that I work with and have worked with over the years is that in a real sense, we want you to get to a place where you're able to control your own behavior. Um, but we also want you to get to a place when you are vulnerable enough to express what your critical needs are um, in a way where, you know, we in some sort of way honor what you need. So if you need a moment to just cry, if you need a moment to just be silent, we have to be able to honor that space that you're in. Um, but you also have to be vulnerable enough to say, this is what my critical needs are. Um, I created a kind of what I consider to be a um, self-care module for for, for young men, and it's called the ENACT model, E-N-A-C-T. And in a real sense, what it does is every day boys have an opportunity to check in with themselves. And when I say check in with themselves, I mean check in with their emotions. Because if I am some sort of way able to check in with my emotions every single day, then I now know what my impulses will be. Mm-hmm. I now know, hey, listen, if I'm frustrated, I know why I'm frustrated, or maybe I don't know why I'm frustrated, but at least in some sort of way, I have identified the fact that I am frustrated, and there are some things that I'm going to need today in order to help me um, not to be frustrated. I have an affirmation um, that I share with boys, and it's called an affirmation for difficult days. Right? Yes, and, I think I saw you do that on, uh, did you sent that out. Uh, from your your social media, didn't you? I did. I yeah, did. So yep. Go ahead, man. I, I, I need you to go ahead school. and spit it, man. Go ahead and spit it. I need to hear it. Oh, man. Uh, so uh, I, I may have to think, but 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 I think one of the biggest pieces of that of that of that affirmation is giving yourself the freedom to be in the space that you're in, knowing that tomorrow will begin, you know, and right. you'll, you'll have the ability to begin all over again. And I think that's what ends up happening with our young men is that we just don't give them the space to um, be free, to share, to express. Um, and as a result, they bottle up those emotions, they bottle up those feelings, um, and they, they, they become, you know, suppressed so much that when it comes time for them to, to share them, it's, it's, it's exploding. You know, and so, you know, 
I wrote that affirmation because I wanted our young men to know that not every day is going to be great. <laughs> there are right. some days that are not going to be so great. However, the greatness of that day is you just acknowledging the fact that today's a difficult day, right? And so, again, just going back to the original statement, that, that, that's the idea of self-regulation, that I am, I am in some sort of way in control of, or, 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 or I don't always like to say in control, but I am in some sort of way more mindful of myself. And as a result of me being more mindful of myself and what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking in the moment, I have the ability to also be more mindful of those around me, which then goes to a whole nother piece of, you know, uh, or, you know, understanding what your where your peers are experiencing or even understanding empathy. Right. But so here's the thing, Keith, we were having like this identical conversation and it's a, it's an ongoing conversation among the leaders that are charged to do this work. It's extremely necessary. It is revolutionary in thought because it shifts the paradigm from the traditional mindset that boys are to do and not feel right. Boys, men are to, you know, get up, go to work every day, no matter how you feel, et cetera. You got a family to provide for your feelings, your emotions, your, all of those things become secondary to your responsibility. And when, and in some phases, yeah, there are going to be some difficult days, as you mentioned, and no matter how you feel, the things that you have to do still need to get done. Here's the question that I have for you. The question that I have for you is, and this is the challenge that uh, some of our educators face every day. And we liken it to fixing the same table every single day, right? Right. So it's mm-hmm. that it's that same leg on that table that you must repair every single day. I understand mm-hmm. that the the methods that I'm using, the mindfulness practice, whether it's calm classroom, whether it's trauma informed youth practices, whether it's restorative mm-hmm. practices, whether it's any any shape, form, or fashion of those things that make make us more mindful of ourselves. Like these are great tools that this young person can use for life. But really, at this particular time in their life, it may only be safe for them to use at my school because he may not be able to be reflective or mindful when he hits the block. You understand? So uh, when he gets in, his household hasn't adopted restorative practices yet. So instead of giving them a chance to reflect, repair, restore. No, we're still whooping butt. You know, you know, we're, yeah. you know, we're still. So like, how is it that what's the balance uh, that you see or wh- how would you articulate? Now we're speaking directly to a parent body where now this young man, he's been able to unearth. And let me give you a real example. Uh, this year mm-hmm. uh, we had a young man. It worked out well within the environment. Um, some of the aggression that this young person was displaying. But that particular day uh, he had seen his father physically assault his mother. Of course. Okay. And then he came to school and displaced that aggression or misplaced that aggression into the classroom. So what Mm -hmm. do you say to him? Mm -hmm. He was able to reflect, repair, restore his relationship within the environment. And of course we did the necessary things we needed to do as professionals uh, regarding the matters of abuse in the home. But that is something that is systemic. So it didn't just start with his father. Uh, it started yeah. with his grandmother. It started with his great grandmother. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Like how do we yeah. begin to yeah. unwork that cultural narrative within families that we're not just fixing that same broke table every single day? Yeah, I think um, w- one of the things, because I don't profess to have, you know, the, 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 the secret sauce, but, but one of the things that I have found 
and my own experiences to be helpful is the teacher, is the school, um, really making a strong commitment, not just to children, but also to their families. Um, that is to say that oftentimes teachers will have to have those difficult conversations with families. Principals, school leaders will have to have those difficult conversations with families and really help families to understand the impact of the trauma that that young man or young girl is experiencing in the home, right? I think that um, what ends up happening is that when we get to those critical conversations, when we get to those courageous conversations, educators and oftentimes school leaders um, take a step back, right? Because we can control what happens in this environment, um, but we don't have an opportunity to control what happens when our children leave out of our environment. Um, however, however, you know, in a real sense, we may not be able to control it, but we can certainly inform um, our parents. And when I say inform, I don't mean just by way of telling them. I mean helping them to really understand and begin to unpack why it is that the behavior that their child is experiencing or why it is that what their child is facing, how that's connected um, to what's happening in the home. And then just letting the parent know that I'm also here for you, right? Like I'm an educator, yes, for educating your, your child, but I'm also here to support you as well. Um, and the, the, the school here in D.C., the school that I was that for, for just a short time, two years, Stanton Elementary School in Southeast D.C. has made a full commitment to the entire family. And I've watched for those two years families become whole as a result of teachers and school leaders having some of these critical and very courageous conversations with families. And so I think that's just one of the things, having the conversation. And then not only that, but then going out into the communities. Um, I am currently a doctoral student at Wesley Theological Seminary, and um, my degree really focuses on, thank you, thank you, my degree focuses on the intersections of spirituality and equity in urban schools, specifically with boys of color. And so one of the things that I really talk about uh, or will be talking about in the dissertation work is how do we in some sort of way um, partner, how do school leaders and faith-based leaders. How do they partner such that we are making sure that there's equity in our schools and that our children are succeeding in all areas of their lives? Which oftentimes when you think of school leadership or schools and you think of faith-based leaders, they oftentimes don't occupy the same space. However, they have to occupy the same space because they often occupy the same physical space. The church is right across the street from the school. It's in the neighborhood of the school. And so this situation that is happening with our children, specifically boys of color, is what I consider to be an all-hands-on-deck situation. So everybody in the community at this point has a responsibility to make sure that our young men are being healthy, that our young men are being whole, and that we all play a part in the successfulness of black and brown boys. And so that's another way that we in some sort of way can have those conversations with families. You know, if the church in some sort of way partners with schools, then it's almost as if the family is, you know, inundated with support. 
And so oftentimes when a family is inundated with support, they know I can, I, I can be vulnerable. I can be transparent. I can say what's really going on. I can say that we need help, you know? And so just in some sort of way, one, teachers, educators having that, that conversation, and then two, community coming together and really being a community and offering support, not just to children, but to the entire family. That's great. So, Keith, let me ask you, man, when you talk about the intersectionality mm-hmm. of spirituality and education, uh, educational mm-hmm. leaders, spiritual leaders, uh, community leaders, um, I mm-hmm. think it's part I think it's extremely important about finding like where does the value lie where this is uh, worth everyone's participation when you talk about mobilizing because I've seen it so many times where people go in and like a new leader comes in and they start to mobilize galvanize the support of other leaders there's a huge you know movement in the beginning everybody's crying out about you know black and brown boys we need to make sure we rally and support them and then they find out you know they they either are connected to a nonprofit or they figure out the dollars that are sent the the federal dollars that are centered around mentoring, you know, our young men and they put together a 12 point program and they start this mentoring and you don't see really the results of that until years from now. But the tracking and the consistency of those relationships began to wane over the years. So how do you suggest or what do you suggest uh, if somebody is, cause I believe this, this is just, first let me give like the fundamental belief on what, what it is that I think is that if you are not committed to really being in a young person's life, then you should keep that relationship totally surface so that that young person, yeah. you don't become another failed relationship in that young person's Absolutely. life. So fundamentally, Absolutely. that is just where I am. Uh, whether you are a spiritual leader or whether you are a school leader or community leader, uh, we are asking our children to be vulnerable in surface relationships. And that, that right there, that's what kind of, uh, as, as you can tell, is one of my Achilles heels is that Someone who would not listen to the truth that this young person is displaying, probably sometimes through undesired behavior, but you won't listen to what they have to say for 10 minutes, but you want them to listen to you for 45 minutes. That is a problem. (laughs) You know, that, that is a, that is a problem for me. Um, because what I believe, and this is just, this is just my thing, is that when we, uh, I approach each child from the perspective of knowing that they were created whole, right? Yeah. And my work in their life is to continue to bring back the reality and the truth that they were created whole. And so when I think about, when we talk about our boys, when we talk about our community, when we talk about the fathers, when we talk about the women, black and brown, sometimes we approach them with the thought and the idea that I have to fix you because you're broken. Yeah. And I think yeah. that people can have trauma, people can have incidents, there can be some fractures that occur. But when we speak to them, we have to speak for, to them from a place of wholeness that says, I value who you currently are, but I believe mm-hmm. there's so much more in you that we have mm-hmm. yet to see. And I think yeah. that strength-based approach, man, is is where we can begin to like see the bedrock of where true change can begin. And that is where like the intersectionality of spirituality and education become. So the word of God says, yeah. what study, show yourself approval. Workmen need not be in shame. What rightly dividing the word, the word of truth. truth. Yeah. 
So, man, when we get to the point of understanding that we can no longer be on the spiritual side, we cannot be ignorant Christians, right? <laughs> we yeah. have to be somebody yeah. that's... Go ahead, brother. Yeah, and, 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 and you know the idea, too, is, is not only ignorant Christians, but we also have to be uh, Christians and faith-based leaders who are connected to the movements of history and how the movements of history, how, how, how faith or how spirituality has um, found its way throughout history. I say that to say that when we think in terms of faith-based leaders and the role of the church and the role of spirituality during the civil rights era, um, there was no bifurcation or separation between um, school and, you know, this is school, this is church, and we're not connecting. Every single person, every single organization was committed to improving the quality of life for, for, for black and brown people. And I feel over time, we have in some sort of way removed ourselves from that level of struggle, as well as that level of collaboration and community-driven mindset. Um, and so I think what has to happen is that we as faith-based leaders have to first go back and say, this is what church was for those civil rights leader preachers and, and, and ministers. This is what church was. Church was making sure that not only were the children academically succeeding, but that they were also spiritually whole and that they were also socially aware and conscious of what was happening during that time period. And so <clears throat> I think we have to get back to that place um, when we understand that this is, a, this is a time in which every single entity um, must be connected um, to improving the quality of life for, for our children. Um, specifically for our young men. And what happens, to your point, is that, you know, we, we, we start off great, and then we start falling off. And I think a lot of the fall off is because we haven't spent enough time thinking through, okay, what is going to be our contribution to this work? Or, you know, the education, you know, uh, uh, aside saying, what is our contribution? Because when we spend more time thinking about what our contributions will be to the work, then, then what happens is that we're more invested, as opposed to just picking up and just kind of, you know, hitting, hitting the ground running. We now are connected to a cause. We now are connected to something um, that is sustainable. Um, and so I think that that's just kind of one of the pieces, but then also the piece of redefining spirituality um, and really understanding that spirituality really is um, developing um, a, a, a stronger sense of self. It is understanding that you are a part of something greater um, and really understanding that in some sort of way you matter, like you said before, that you are um, uh, essential to this, 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 this part of life. Um, and in order for us to kind of rise up and kind of come together as a community, everybody again has to play a part. So I think what has to happen is that we have to literally have conversations where everyone is at the table from the educators to the faith-based leaders, to the families, to the children, everyone has to play a part um, because then that's really kind of where true investment happens. Um, and at this point, I don't know if we, I think we're getting there, but um, there's still some work uh, that, that, that I think has to be done. Yes, I agree. And um, when we talk about 
inviting people to the table. One of the things that I know a lot of schools in Detroit are starting to do, and I see it across the nation, but I think it stands to be, you know, spoken during, you know, this interview because there are, are you know, thousands listening, is that mm-hmm. we have to invite the young men to the table. Uh, That's it. Because a lot of times, I and listen, we are, there are so many intelligent people, and this is not to knock the efforts that have gone forth, not at all. Yeah. But you and I, over the, we could sit probably for one hour, develop a full curriculum and a plan. Uh, but what it may not do is it may not reach the real need that those young men express, right? Because it doesn't have their voice. And one of the things that I love yeah. about uh, following your work, when you talk about volume one of Freedom's Design, 20 Days of Empowering Black Kings, you know, mm-hmm. and it says, I am my history is that it has mm-hmm. such a personal stake and ownership of, you know, their story. Like you are the one that help that can tell your story. And it's either going to be from a victor's perspective or a victim's perspective. You choose. Yeah. And when you yeah. talk about affirming, like that is the when you spoke about your dad, what I essentially heard him say is I affirm, you know, who God created you to be. And I think that, that is that is so vital to having a healthy relationship with a young person, a letting them know like God thought so much of you that he included you in his plan. Like, yeah, God. And, 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 yeah, go yeah, ahead. Yeah. I, I was going to say, not just affirming, you know, you know uh, who that, who that young person is, but sort of way, um, letting that young person know, letting that young man know you are great just, how you are even in this moment, right? right? Um, and, and also helping them to identify the, the points in which in their lives that they have expressed or they have shown amazing attributes and characteristics and skills and, and talent and gifting. Um, a portion of the book or, or kind of the, the reason for writing the book is I wanted young boys to understand that the same kind of courage and tenacity and resilience that our ancestors like Harriet Tubman and, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. and Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker, some of the same characteristics that they displayed in, our, in the fight to freedom are the same characteristics that you young man have even right now. And I think what ends up happening is that we're so busy trying to, quote unquote, fix our young men that we in some sort of way are not affirming who they are right now. And we're not helping them to identify the times in their life where they already climbed over a mountain or they already jumped over a hurdle. And so that is just so very important in our work with boys of color. That is how they begin to change their own narrative. They begin to change their own narrative because now they have some identifiable traits that they can, one, connect to our ancestors, and two, they can identify for themselves that give them the courage to keep on moving forward. And so the first volume of the book, Freedom Design, 20 Days of Empowering Black Kings, um, I wanted that, that affirmational statement that I am my history, meaning you are all of the beautiful things of your history, all of the things that people may not have taught you or shared with you. What I tried to do is in those 20 days, those 20 poems, what I tried to do was I tried to embed 
elements of our history um, so that young men can say, oh, wow, we're responsible for that. You know, oh, I didn't know that she did this or that he did that. And so I wanted them to begin to see the people in our history who have in some sort of way paved the way. Um, and I wanted them to be able to know that they're connected to that. And I think when they know that, or once they have that understanding that they're connected to that, then they walk into more of, of, of who they are. Um, and they have the, the, the tools to kind of change their narrative. We can't, we can't say, oh, we're changing the narrative of, of black and brown boys without them having the tools to change their narrative. You yeah, know, I, um, I we agree. don't have the tools to change it solely. You know, they have to change their narrative. Absolutely. They have to begin to tell their story. And, mm -hmm. you know, when you empower them and affirm them to let them know that their voice has value, they'll begin to learn how to leverage their voice for their to advocate for themselves. So and for we, we, yeah, and for others. So when we affirm them in the present, it allows them to advocate for themselves and others. You can write that down. I'll give that to you for free, my brother. It's probably <laughs> it's probably already yeah. in the book. But uh, so, yeah. yeah, man, let's. Let's examine that. Let's talk about that. We have about 20 minutes left, but one of the things yep. that um I was looking at in the in the vital work of of empowering uh black brown and you know other boys is that when we speak to them, we have to speak to them in ways that cultivate their potential. Uh we have to speak to them in ways that affirm their greatness. We have to converse with them and here's what I found, man. Here's what I found is that a lot of times they are ready and willing to talk, but who was ever leading them uh, has grown up so traditionally that they are uncomfortable with the vulnerability that that child is ready to share. Absolutely. And, and, I, and that's been my experience, right? My experience has been that our boys are, you know, in a place where they're, 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 they're looking to, you know, some of the adults that are around them to have those conversations and and because we and all we oftentimes are not ready and because we oftentimes have not grappled or dealt with our own um kind of kind of brokenness, if you will, then we're not prepared to step into these conversations with our young men. And so um after writing Freedom Design, I realized that Freedom Design not only has the potential of helping to heal and provide a platform for young boys, but it also gives the adults in their lives a platform to talk and, 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 and heal as well. Um, because it's so vital in the work that you, we, we all have to approach this work with a sense of vulnerability, that it's not just our young men. And that, that's, that's, a, that's a, that's a point. We, we, we want our young men to open up and be so vulnerable, but we as adults are not willing to do that. You know, and that's why, you know, around the country, there's more trainings and workshops and conversations about how can we as educators, how can we begin to unpack our own issues in order for us to show up in the best way for our children? Um, because we can't really show up in the best way if we ourselves are not vulnerable enough um, to kind of grapple with our, with our own things. Um, you know, and so that's kind of w w where I, I, I see that idea of collaboration, that young man in some sort of way um, is, is, is willing and ready, you know, to share and to, and, to, and to heal and to be whole. And we also have to be willing to do the same thing. 
I agree. So you have coined in one of your posts, you says, we are called to help heal the hurt of our son's face every day and give them an opportunity to live beyond the pain, love without limitations, and listen to the power of their own voice. So Brian K. Harris, man, you've spoken across the nation uh, you've been called to, you know, do workshops and series at different educational conferences. You're preaching. What is next for Brian K. Harris? Yeah, so um, I, I think what's next for me um, is just having more conversations and creating more platforms for both boys, for educators, and for families um, to do the necessary work. Um, in order for all three entities to um, reach their full and maximum potential. Um, and so that looks like writing more books, you know, writing books, targeting um, educators and, and affirming them and helping them to kind of grapple through. That looks like writing more books for families um, and helping them to kind of do some some work. And that looks like just doing more trainings and workshops on how it is. Um, that we can really, as a community, get to that place of healing in order for us to um, be successful. And then also um, giving our young people, our boys, an opportunity to begin um, to write their own stories. Um, So I started a publishing company, Be Free Publishing. And um, the, the mission of Be Free Publishing is really providing boys of color an opportunity um, to, one, become a published author, but then two, to really share their own story, um, because that's how we really can begin to change. When young men have the opportunity to write and share their narrative, and other young men have an opportunity to be healed and set free. Um, and so what's next for me is just more of the work um, that I've been doing and trying my best to get in front of as many black and brown boys as I can to just affirm who they are, um, to let them know that they're loved, to let them know that they are not um, slaves to the stigmas of society, um, and that they are um, everything that God has intended them to be. Um, and then as they continue to grow, that there'll be people along the way who will who will help to support their growth and development. Oh, that's awesome, man. I, I only have yeah. one bone to pick with you, sir. Only one yeah. bone to pick with you, man. I love the work that you're doing. You're in one of my favorite cities. Uh, D.C., you know, all of the workmen and all of the lives that are being impacted by your call and your commitment to what God has charged you to do. That's awesome. So now the bone I have to pick with you, man, I see you throwing (laughs) up some sign in these pictures. Um, Yeah, you know, that crimson. I know very well. Thing. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's not old gold and black, but I do see a picture of you <laughs> with some Nikes on. I'm looking at the picture right now, and they, they look a little old gold and black. The hat no, is red. You won't see that, sir. Yeah, the hat you is red. I, I see the old gold and black shoes. Uh, you, I'll, I'll say it on behalf of everybody else. Uh, you know, you're welcome. Yeah, you're, you know, I'll be good. <laughs> but no, man, listen, uh, I'm glad that you are. Uh, you know, I, I know you went to an HBCU. Uh, I see I that you are, uh, you know, a part of Kappa Alpha Psi. And uh, I see that you are, man, doing the work. And uh, that yeah. is to be uh, commended. 
Uh, and I, I pray and hope and just continue to pray, man, God's strength to you and that he sends along yeah. the resources necessary for that to come to pass. So speaking of resources, I'd like now yeah. if you could give everybody your social media handles or where they can support sure. or purchase the book. Sure, sure, absolutely. So um, you can go to uh, my website, which is www.ryankeithharris.ecwid.com. Um, and if you can't remember all of that, you can just go on all of the social media platforms. Um, just put in Brian Keith Harris and all the information, uh, how to purchase the book is on all of the platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, and then if you don't want to even go through that, you can go right onto Amazon and put in the title Freedom's Design, 20 Days of Empowering Black Kings. And um, you'll be able to pick up the copy and really impart to the young men that are in your in your village. Okay, so this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do, yep. Brian. So within the next, let's do it in October. October is anti-bullying okay. month, right? So yeah, yeah. Uh, let's you and I, uh, some we'll set the date, but let's do a, a Facebook live together where we are just we'll kind it. of you know ministering, sharing out the word, collaborating, we'll calling as many you know uh, you know leaders that are doing the work out there to tune in yeah. and just really talk about what does bullying look like within the African American community. Is it is yeah. is it capping like when somebody starts to cap on somebody or talk about right. or Jones or play the dozens, how whatever generation you're from, but when people right. are begin to talk back and forth and work our way through like some of the cultural normatives and then how we can begin to handle that uh, bullying within the African-American community, particularly young black men. How does that impact us? So, uh, man, listen, so here, here's the thing. I always give all of my guests a challenge. I give them a challenge, right? And after, after, yeah, after I leverage this challenge, Here's, after I leverage the challenge, man, I want you to just, you know, allow God to use you and speak a word out to the parents, to the young men, to the school leaders, to the spiritual leaders uh, that are listening yeah. that you may want to leave with them that God has impressed upon you to share. Um, but my challenge for you is to, through your publishing company, uh, to create some type of video, like when they get it polished, when they get it all together. And if you, even yeah, if you can yeah. start documenting like the, the groundwork that it takes when they're just learning to articulate their stories, man, create a night. I don't know what you're going to call the book. I don't know what you're going to call the collection of stories. Uh, but mm-hmm. like create a night, man, where they can come on stage uninterrupted. Uh, you know, course, 10, 10 to 12. And I'm sure this may be something you already have on deck. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it it, it is actually. It, it's it's funny you you even mentioned that because even one of the portions of Freedom's Design um, is boys taking the work of the book and putting it on stage. And so um, I have an event on November the second here in in the DMV area, and um, there are young men, a group of eight young men who have taken the the, the poetry, and I have charged them with. They're all artists in some sort of way, a dancer, an actor, singer, musician. Um, I charge them with coming together and really uh, uplifting um, the poetry that's in the book. And so that is definitely on the forefront of my mind always. How can we take what is written and then put it in a artistic and creative form such that it will be palatable 
um, for everybody, palatable and accessible for everybody. Um, so I accept that challenge absolutely, and um, I'm looking forward to the young men who, um, who who express an interest in sharing their stories. Um, and so just kind of looking to find my very first, you know, client or, or you know, young author, if you will, All right. and really helping him, him and his family to walk through the process of, you know, becoming a published author. Um, how amazing would it be for a nine-year-old or ten-year-old? Number one, to be a published author. Number two, to be an entrepreneur, um, because you now business in your own platform. But then number three, having a story out there that has the power and potential to heal and give hope to someone else. Um, so I'm excited about that work um, and, and looking forward to it. Excellent. So you now, and I'm going to hit you with a challenge, a mini sermonette. You have 60 okay. seconds to speak life. Ready, <laughs> set. You got the mic. All right. Uh, so, you know, to all of the families, um, <clears throat> I want to make sure that everyone understands that in order for us to really make sure that our young people are becoming all that they're supposed to be, we have to begin to do the work that is necessary in order for us to show up in the best way for our young people. We have to be careful on how it is that we impart to them, and we have to make sure that we are to the power of their potential. Um, we have to make sure that we are speaking to their possibilities. And we have to make sure that every single day we are affirming who they are and who God has called each of them to be. So I am encouraging all of you guys to, over the course of this week and next week, to find as many young people as you can and affirm them, um, share with them you know, your own story, and really impart to them. Um, for those of you who know the words of prayer, and worth of prayer, I'm asking all of you to cover our young people. Many of our young people, um, you know, are afraid to go to school. Many of our young people are, you know, nervous about sitting in classrooms and, you know, dealing with other young people. And so I'm asking that everyone, you know, really focuses on being intentional in prayer over our young people. Um, and then lastly, um, I am giving a ploy to all of our parents to really um, invest in your child in a way that you are watching them become all that God has called them to be and that you, you try not to hinder them um, or hinder their progress of becoming by putting your own uh, limitations on them. Take off the barriers, take off the limitations, and you will be surprised at how God elevates them and elevates you in the process as a result of you being that sounding board for your child or for the young people in your life. Amen. Let the church say, praise amen. the Lord. And amen. <laughs> all right. So that was amazing. And, uh, man, I appreciate you, you calling in all the way from D.C. to the Drawing Board amen. Nation. You know what time it is. Your future is what? Not behind you. It is not before you. It is within you. I'm Andre Ebron. Thank you to my guest. I'm going to call him Dr. Uh, Brian you, K. Harris, Dr. Brian K. Harris, thank you for being on, and God bless you thank all. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. God bless you as well, brother. Thank you again.